Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by Mr. Sonny Bunch, critic extraordinaire. We are going to talk about Zack Snyder and specifically Watchmen, the movie about superheroes and why they're also tragic and also American. First of all, Mr. Bunch, thank you for joining me. Please introduce yourself for our audience and tell us, how do you feel about Zack Snyder? Hi, everyone. So I am infamous as a Zack Snyder hack, uh, (laughs) defender to the end, accepting Justice League, which isn't really a Zack Snyder movie. Look, here's I have a couple of broader thoughts about Zack Snyder, which is that, A, I think that anybody who is able to bring their own personal style to massive big budget filmmaking like we have today is at the very least worth paying attention to. I think, you know, you have your cookie cutter assembly line products like the Marvel movies, which are all very good, but they're all within a very narrow baseline of good, acceptably done, but not particularly memorable. And they're all kind of sans any real style. None of them has a unique style. Ryan Coogler tried to bring some of that to the Black Panther uh, movie, but I still think it's working very, very much within the standard Marvel method. The Russo brothers have a good sense of action, but they are still just making pretty straightforward action cinema. And again, it's all very well done, but it's not particularly eye-catching or memorable. What Snyder has managed to do is bring a personal aesthetic and say what you will about the speed ramping, the slowing down and speeding up. But within the milieu that he is working, within the world of comic book adaptations, which is frankly what most of his career has been, it actually makes a lot of aesthetic sense. What he is doing is mimicking the look of a comic book frame. And he's doing it in a way that makes sense for cinema. If you go back and look at the Ang Lee Hulk movie, There are these weird shots where the screen itself breaks up into basically a comic book page with panels everywhere. And your eyes kind of drawn over here, then over there, then over there to make sense of what's going on. Well, that's not doing that sort of thing in film doesn't make as much sense as basically freezing the frame, letting you see the action, then speeding you up and taking you into the next frame. That is an actual cinematic representation of what a comic book page looks like. And this is why I always thought it was kind of funny when he was given Man of Steel. And I think Christopher Nolan or maybe it was somebody else said something like, don't worry, guys, no slow-mo in this one. And I was like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. If you're going to hire a guy like this, you might as well let him do his thing. And I think we got back to some of that with Batman vs. Superman. But, uh, but anyway, what I find interesting thematically about Snyder's work, especially the DC movies, but this goes also back to 300, is this idea of what it would be like if a god showed up on Earth. I mean, the central idea of Man of Steel all the way through Batman vs. Superman and Wonder Woman and Suicide Squad even, which is not a good movie, but it's still there, is how would the world change if an actual superhuman godlike being showed up on planet Earth and, you know, started destroying stuff. I mean, I, he, I've i never been very fond of the criticism that Man of Steel, you know, is bad because Superman let too many civilians die. I mean, he, like, he was trying to stop the literal destruction of the world. Time was a factor. So the idea that he's to be lame for all these deaths that were caused by Zod is dumb. But this idea that how would society change? How would our various structures react to it? You know, like I said, Suicide Squad is not a very good movie, but it's a fascinating film to think about from the perspective of how would how would the American government respond to the appearance of Superman? And you see a little bit of that in Man of Steel where the army's kind of like, well, we can't stop Zod, so I guess we got to let Superman do it. But I think there's a certain strain of thought that would be much more like the Amanda Waller strain 
we need to figure out how to stop these people at any cost. We need to figure out how to make this go away. And of course, Batman vs Superman, you know, it, it's it's a mess of a movie. The director's cut is better. The theatrical cut's a bit of a mess. But the best part is the opening moments where Bruce Wayne, almost inarguably the most powerful human being on the planet at that point, you know, he's an Olympic caliber athlete. He's a master of martial arts. He's got all the gadgets and toys. And he's also a billionaire. He can buy banks and save people's foreclosed houses. He can do anything he wants. And he realizes that he is actually just an insignificant ant watching the gods battle amongst us up in the sky. The idea there that he would respond to this by trying to figure out how to stop this from happening is an interesting one and one that makes sense and one that's worth thinking about. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a bunch of stuff that comes together in Zack Snyder that makes him the right kind of artist for blockbusters, for big budget movie making that's supposed to impress people and be memorable, not just an entertainment. One of it is how physical everything looks, and I think that's a very important thing to him, that these people's bodies are incredibly impressive, incredibly strained, and there's a lot of dangerous stuff going on. Partly, I guess it's a matter of attracting people's attention. Partly, I think it's a matter of showing that the beautiful naturally slides into the noble. Do you like Superman because of the pecs or because he's good or both or the power or is the power both of them? How does that tie up with his splendid suit? They're all somehow tied up together and otherwise heroes wouldn't really be heroic. And uh, this inclines him to look on the tragic side of life. And graphic novels and comic books had an unusual penchant for that as well, because it was just much easier in those terms, both of genre and of drawing, to suggest that some things are more than merely ordinary. That's hard to do, partly because of the media we use and partly because of the way we use it and our assumptions. And Mm. partly, of course, because of the way we increasingly turn things into a fairly simple form of politics where you have to pick a hero, you have to pick a villain, and then they have to fight it out in metaphoric words of words on the internet. So Mm. that ends up with everybody's hated. Everybody is hated by at least half the nation. Who's left to be memorable? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back and think about 300 and the way that film is actually structured... It is exactly this idea of providing an example for people to follow, right? The film, we watch it in what we can assume to be real time, right? But it's actually a story being told by, I forget the the name of the character from Herodotus, but he is telling the story of the 300 to the assembled troops going out to do battle with the Persians, right? This is the framing rubric that he uses. And again, if you think about how 300 looks with these statuesque Greek fighters, it is amusingly historically inaccurate. I mean, the whole reason the Spartans were such an impressive fighting force is because they actually had really good armor and very strong shields and they fought in the phalanx. The phalanx, thank you. These men are instead, of course, portrayed as basically abs with heads. (laughs) <laughs> and and it's this idea of statuesque, noble beauty, the beauty, the good and the, you know, there's all sorts of philosophy that I think you're probably more equipped to discuss than I am. But it is a running point of ancient philosophy. The noble and the good are also the beautiful. Yeah. You admire things that people do. And at least in the case of physical contest, the deeds are seen in the bodies because somebody has to do something impressive. It's like watching Michael Jordan. You understand that there's a lot of effort, willpower, and so forth, but you see it all in one body. Mm. This is two problems of all our storytelling put together into one. On the one hand, you have to make memorable things that also catch attention. 
it's got to be interesting now, but it's also got to be interesting in a broader sense, or else it'll be forgotten instantly. And aside from this, there's also this other matter. How do you make soul transparent or visible? You don't know what people's intentions are, especially in our world. People appear in very disparate ways in very different places, and they're always moving in and out of frame. How do you ever focus on somebody? How do you ever feel, I know, I know such and such a person is such and such a person? How do you get that moment of recognition? And even more, the sense that somebody's character or what kind of person they are or ultimately what their soul is, that it can help you predict what they'll do. You get to understand what goes on that way. Our storytelling, I think, for this reason ultimately, has turned around everywhere towards heroes. From computer games to movies for girls, everything is superheroes. I think ultimately because people identify the memorable with the heroic. And the basis of that is this notion that you can see somebody's character in his actions. You know, it's the 300, they're Spartans, they're ultimately the people who believe that actions speak louder than words. As you pointed out, they too need words, somebody has to tell their story. But that's the advantage that you get with memorable stuff. You get the sense that you can make things obvious to people that are invisible in real life. And admittedly, 300 has this amazing transformation. All these Spartans instantly turn into Athenians because Americans are like Athenians. Mm -hmm. All the individualism that you mentioned and this individual striving. There's something about togetherness, but there's not that much. They're individualists because Americans are that way. Yeah. My favorite scene in 300 is when he kicks the Persian ambassador and kills him and yells that this is Sparta. No, that's Athens. In the Book of Herodotus, both the Athenians and the Spartans kill the Persian ambassadors, but the Athenians high-five each other over it, whereas the Spartans think they've done something horribly impious, and two of them volunteer to go all the way to Babylon to sacrifice their lives, to make amends, because they were pious people. That's how they thought about things. But in the movie, you get this other version. What Americans do need heroism, but they need it in an American, Athenian mode. Or the sculpture lists this idea that everybody's bound by the laws together and... You know, that's the old story of the Spartans, that they obeyed the laws and they died. That's the memorial of the 300 soldiers. So he's quite savvy about updating this for an American age. Well, and it's also worth looking at the things that he added to Frank Miller's story. I mean, basically all of the stuff with the Queen is an addition that Zack Snyder put in. Either if you were being cynical about this, you could say it was a play to increase the gender representation or some such, which is important in our culture and society people care about that sort of thing but also he added all i think i'm pretty sure all of the stuff from the what is it the jerusia the spartan government i mean it's nonsensical and it's again very ahistorical but it is an addition that is designed to give it that again kind of athenian feel it is much more the athenian notion of government and decision making by a body politic than anything the spartans had Yes, that's very true. And again, these things are supposed to speak to Americans. And so far as I can tell, they did. Nobody was under any doubt about what they were seeing and why they were paying attention to that. So it's quite a success. Yeah, Neil Stevenson wrote a great essay back when 300 came out that basically took to task all of the sneering laughter from much of the critical core regarding 300. You know, Neil Stevenson, who has to be some sort of crypto reactionary is basically saying like you people out there you writers and you intellectuals you see 300 and you laugh at this idea of you know sacrifice and believing in something more and you think it's camp and you think it's you know whatever but there are a lot of people who this really speaks to and who take it seriously who just take the ideas of the film seriously so yeah i think that's look it up look it's on google 
I didn't read it, but it makes a lot of sense. These movies wouldn't have an audience otherwise, and there's no getting around the fact that our military movies have turned into this sort of superhero form of storytelling that's best shown actually in the 300. That's not an accident either. Actually, people with their special forces, yeah, they're pretty much as superheroic as ancient soldiers were at their peak. There's a yeah. lot there about willingness to risk your life and supreme abilities of mental and physical kinds that go together in strange ways. It's just that Zack Snyder is the only guy who's really, really interested in how tragic this is and how interesting it is that there are human beings pushing their powers to the limits. It is the case that there's a preference in commentary for things like Marvel, where heroes always bicker, even if they're a team, and each one of them has his neuroses. And Mm -hmm. you feel like half the time Iron Man is looking for a shrink, maybe. I saw Captain America Civil War, which should be Iron Man 4. And Mm -hmm. he's going to work out his daddy issues with technology. Mm -hmm. They're not heroes. They're just boys with neuroses and too much power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Zack Snyder doesn't seem to believe that. He seems to think that they're grown men. And actually, there are a lot of good reasons to try and be a hero if he possibly could. It's just not obvious that it's possible for most people. I think that's what made him the perfect director for Man of Steel, even if they didn't let him run as free as they should have with his technique, because he knows how to put it in service of this kind of storytelling. He's one of the guys that you could expect not to be ironic about Superman, or not to laugh at it. As you put it, he's really serious about what if some of the things we wish for, what if we actually got it? And some of the stuff in Man of Steel must come from Nolan and David Goyer, who's also a really savvy writer. But Nolan clearly comes from an education in the classics. And his Batman movies are patterned on the Orestea tragedy of Aeschylus about how did the rule of law get installed in Athens. So also with this, how do you install the rule of law here? You start with corrupt cops, you end up with cops willing to sacrifice their lives. There's an arc there. Mm -hmm. So Man of Steel actually starts with the description that's book eight of Plato's Republic. And you later see Clark Kent, the boy with Plato's Republic in his hands. It's not like anybody would really believe that kids read philosophy. It's just a pointer to people. In book eight, Socrates explains that even if you could have utopian politics, you couldn't control genetics. And eventually everything would collapse. You couldn't breed enough superheroes. Which is what happens on Krypton. Exactly. There you see we're tempted. I mean partly because of our scientific powers, but partly simply because we're impatient with growing old and dying. You're tempted, what if we could have things perfect? Well, there's a name for that. It's Plato's Republic. There you see a beautiful city that's actually perfect. And you see that it would break down. And it's only in light of that that then you can tell Superman's story because Superman is no longer promising people that he'll lead them to that. He's not going to be saving people from every mistake and turning life into perfection to the point where nobody has any freedom anymore. He can't be that. Instead, he's got to be some kind of American kid and has this sort of Boy Scout education. But even there, there's something in Zack Snyder and in Nolan and the sort of storytelling they do that's really, really serious about what happens if you're playing with a lot of power. Superman's dad, in one of these silly moments, sacrifices his life to save a dog. That's Zack Snyder's way of saying, God wouldn't care more about you than you do about a dog. It's that level of difference. Other people are like you, but if there were gods among us, they would be to you what you are to the dog. These are incredibly shocking things to tell an audience, especially nowadays. They're somewhat subtle, but they're there. Why would that guy commit suicide? Well, he wants to give an example to his son who's a god. You shouldn't be indifferent to people just because they're weak and maybe stupid. 
And at the same time, of course, his dad tells him to refrain from using his powers, which again is supposed to make sense for what America is like nowadays. Why not? If you're sure that your motives are pure, if you're acting out of righteous indignation, and you have the power to make things right, why not? Why shouldn't you do everything in your power to make everything right every time you get angry about some dangerous thing happening? Well, that's the high road to tyranny. Nobody's going to end up having any freedom, and nobody will ever be able to disagree with you. You have all the power. And of course, this is a problem not just for delusions of power on social media, but throughout American politics and society. It's really, really hard to say freedom has its rights even against moral indignation. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredible achievement even beyond thinking about what does it mean to have these super powerful beings who have to live with our problems but not with our limits you begin to discover that there would be limits. And I think that if Dawn of Justice, Batman vs. Superman, hadn't been screwed over by the studio, as best I can tell, there was a lot there about, okay, how would politicians react to this? What would Congress do? What would corporations do, the other powers in our world, if they had to deal with creatures that seem to have no limits? It would create a real shock in society, because hierarchies would be upended. How would powerful people live if they're humiliated Mm -hmm. by this kind of comparison? Joe in the street might be satisfied because he's saved, but will every ambitious person or wannabe celebrity simply be satisfied to live in the shadow of Superman? So now you got a story, now you got a conflict that brings out stuff that's going on in us, but we just, we don't have enough power to let those conflicts play out. But in the element of story, you could do that. There's, I think, a lot to recommend this kind of storytelling, and there is a broad criticism that doesn't see this, that prefers Marvel to DC. I think there are good reasons to do that. You might like a more comic touch. This criticism would broadly be said, why does everything have to be dark? Why does it have to be so gritty? Oh, people don't want yet another dark thing from Zack Snyder. Actually, all his movies were vastly successful. People did love this stuff. There was no reason to turn Justice League into literally a Joss Whedon movie. And to a large extent, they did that to Aquaman as well. Yeah. You could say that America is big enough that you could have both Marvel and DC. But people, including lots of critics, apparently can't think that that's possible. We cannot have yeah. both. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it is... I, I, at, the, at the risk of... Uh, waxing philosophic i like to think of what we do have instead of what we what we missed out on i mean i I do think there's something to be said for the fact that you know between the dark knight trilogy and four and a half of the five dceu films before aquaman um you you basically have a studio investing between all eight of those movies something like i don't know a billion 1.2 billion dollars uh, in terms of production and and you know uh, publicity and all that, in what are really very auteurist, um, very uh, uh, authorial statements uh, uh, in the guise of big budget filmmaking, I, I like it is it is I, I I'm glad that we got what we got. It's too bad we didn't we 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 will probably never see what Snyder really wanted to do with Justice League. Um, because you can, you can even sense it here and there in the, the bastardized version that we have, um, this idea, uh, that, that justice league was essentially about the, again, continuing the idea of what would happen to a world with a Superman. The, the idea of justice league is what would happen in a world where Superman mis- suddenly vanished. 
where this 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 I this person who everyone looked up to and who was making a difference in the world and who was making things better suddenly died and disappeared. What what, what would happen to society? There'd be a, there'd be uh, I I think a real breakdown. Um, you know, a lot of hopelessness and a lot of aimlessness and a lot of despair. And I I do think that uh, again you can see it mostly in the beginning. Um, the beginning montage that opens the film. And one thing Snyder has always done has had really great opening sequences uh, to his films. Uh, uh, just talking about Justice League, but Batman vs Superman has that great, the great Bruce Wayne bit, watching Metropolis be destroyed. Uh, before that, Man of Steel, the whole opening segment in Krypton, like the, which is basically a 20 minute short film unto itself, um, is amazing. Uh, uh, all the way back to Dawn of the Dead, which has like the kind of uh, the what, you slowly see something is weird and happening. And and then uh, Sarah Polly walks out of her house and she does kind of this 270 degree spin spinning angle shot where you, she sees her like peaceful street on fire with people, corpses running around and people driving over other people. And, you know, her yeah. neighbor has like pulled the gun on her and she's like, what is going on? Uh, it, that is just like he is he he really. Uh, and, and of course, Sucker Punch, but we won't discuss that now. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, but also, uh, and what I think was the subject we wanted to talk about today, Watchmen, the opening, the opening, so, you know, after uh, the fight between um, the comedian and his uh, secret assailant, you get that great, um, basically, montage of tableaus that takes us through the kind of alternate history of the 20th century, that Watchmen that Watchmen suggests, and it's really I mean it's just a it's just a f incredible um, and uh, very effective and uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for here compressed um, uh, piece of storytelling very much show don't tell very much look you can you you follow uh, what what has happened in the world and I you know I. Uh, I love that, and you were you were mentioning it before the show. If you want to start, if you want to talk about it now, yeah, I think it shows you what the change is in America, as you put it in these tableaus, and this is typical of tragedy over comedy. Comedy requires timing. You do a setup, and then you have a punchline. Tragedy works in spaces, in images that mesmerize you. You can't pay attention to details in any of these pictures unless the picture by itself shocks you and interests you. And it shows, as you said, an alternate history of America, but it's history made unusually interesting. It's what happens if the stuff that Americans dream of or stuff that happens in society becomes one individual's problem. It's not just something we all go through. What happens if it's embodied in a person? This is Tocqueville. He said that in the future, you're not going to have all the myths you had in the past because nobody cares about all those fantastic hierarchies in the skies and the deep. What people care about is the future, and the future will be personalized in characters. And everybody will be interested for that reason. And that's what you see here with all these heroes, how America transformed what the future looked like at different points in the 20th century. And it starts from something that's fairly homely and all-American. Heroes who stop bank robberies, vigilantes that act at a very small scale. Nevertheless, the seeds of great transformations are already there. Like the night owl stopping the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. This story is not going to have a Batman. You're going to have Night Owl, who turns out to be a much more mundane character. Because vigilantism is going to stop tragedies. 
You're not gonna have this tortured boy turning his pain and fear into a great power. And you've got people stopping bank robbers, like that's how you introduce the comedian. That was banal storytelling even in comic books and the funnies before that. But it turns into hot babes that you'd expect to see at Radio Music City Hall or in the reviews rather than flanked by cops who admire and approve them to more versions of American freedom. Like the famous VJ Day iconic picture of a sailor kissing a girl, in this case is a heroine kissing a girl. Sexual freedom is part of America's 20th century history. That's one way individualism transformed. But of course, in, in her case, it doesn't end well. Some nutcase murders these women in a later tableau. So you get to see changes, and it turns out that freedom doesn't always work out. You get to see with all of these things what happens after the pictures are taken too. You see the first Minutemen, heroes who trace their name back to the founding wars. They don't end up so well. One of them just gets killed because his cape was caught in a door. That's a dumb, meaningless, ironic thing, but it's realistic in our world. Capes will slow you down. Mothman goes crazy, and here is where the tragic ironies start. The moth is drawn to the flame. Freedom could be self-destructive. If you chase it, you might chase it all the way to the asylum. And of course, madness is always part of our storytelling when it comes to heroes. It's always a temptation there. Deaths and madness, and it turns out that this story is not going to have a happy end. Heroism is essentially tragic. Maybe we don't pay enough attention to heroes as Snyder would want us to because we don't want to face that. Then there's a new lease on life. The 60s come along and a whole new generation of heroes. And you see Dr. Manhattan show up. All of a sudden, Americans have among them a god, an indestructible being that can wield the powers of the universe. And there he is shaking hands with the president. There he is waving to Neil Armstrong on the moon. Changes have grown bigger all of a sudden because America changed something by creating the atomic bomb. Human beings before that didn't have the power to wipe out vast parts of the world, or indeed, life as we know it. And now you see that heroism isn't necessarily a matter of choice anymore. It's driven by social changes, but also by technological changes. People are forced into this stuff, whether they like it or not. Then there's this other strange character, Rosimandias, an American with the ambition to control the future. We're always in the business of rational control. On the left, people want more government because that's rational control, but on the right, people want more markets because that's rational control. You can only have heroes of the market like Steve Jobs or of government like FDR, I guess, if at the end of the day, there's less risk than at the beginning of the day. In the long run, everybody's more prosperous, more comfortable, safer. Heroes are always in the service of rational control. That's who Ozymandias is in the version of globalized capitalism. He has control over the media, he has control over billions of dollars of technology corporations, etc. Because he's super smart, but also incredibly beautiful. He's friends with David Bowie. There's this other kind of freedom, the ambiguous sexuality of Studio 54 in the tableau where we find him. And of course of disco. That's another part of America. The excitement you had in the beginning about heroes that was simply somebody who's going to take care of our problems. There are injustices done, crimes, people are being dishonest, somebody's going to fix it. A basic understanding is going to be restored, we just want to go on with our lives. But that's not the end of it. Then two things happen, everybody becomes individualistic and even these heroes become ever more weird. But also the country is going to war in Vietnam and it's not like World War II anymore, we've gone from the good war to the bad war. It's no longer saving the world from Nazis, it's in the somewhat feverish left-wing imagination of Alan Moore, the guy who made the comic, wiping out Vietnam. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. The power put into play in Vietnam is just inexplicable in relation to any political objective that Americans might approve of. 
so the country becomes corrupted. Instead of patriotism, which is what should follow from this idea that heroes just protect our honesty by helping fight injustice, we get cynicism and madness in increasing ways. And of course, this is also the time when society goes crazy and Rorschach appears. He's a creature of the era when America became liberated. Rorschach sees that we have worse problems than bank robbers. It's people who molest children. And that just makes him go crazy. So there's another impulse there to do justice. And it just gets more and more violent. And this leads to a future catastrophe of America. The country is divided against itself. And it doesn't look like the war against the Russians can end except in nuclear war. And that's the weird thing that heroism is supposed to reveal. People are kind of mad. You can't trust institutions enough that they will lead to a good outcome. Of course, it didn't turn out that way. It's weird to make this movie now, right? This was 2009, 10 years ago. We all know how the Cold War ended. It was actually fine. We didn't go crazy and kill each other or blow up the planet. But the truth is that the potential is there. That something in humanity has changed so that it's not just a fantasy story. These guys are onto something real because the powers that we're playing with now really are of a magnitude that has never been seen or imagined before. So you can create these new kinds of heroes and new kinds of gods because there are problems on a much larger scale. And all of that is just shown in five minutes and change in a montage that's supposed to announce to you what the hell is going to go on in this story. Yeah. It's breathtaking. There's nothing comparable to it in cinema in our times. It's something else. And I, uh, I have always thought that Snyder has gotten short shrift as a visual storyteller, just as somebody who can convey through imagery uh very basic but also important uh plot beats um you know i watchmen is a fascinating film for me because i i have always gotten the sense that uh that snyder looks at the heroes in this film so you know the idea of Watchmen, right, is that Alan Moore poses it as this deconstruction of the idea of superheroes. You know that you've got archetypes, and they're all they're all basically sick and wrong and bad. Um, and Snyder, I don't know if he did this intentionally or not, but watching when you watch Watchmen, um, it is almost impossible to come away uh, from it without thinking that he views all of these people as basically right. Um, except for maybe the comedian. Uh, but the, but basically if you, you know, he, I think he is deeply sympathetic, uh, to Rorschach, whereas more is dismissive and, um, thinks he's a crank. Uh, I think he's, I think, uh, Snyder is deeply sympathetic, sympathetic to Ozymandias and the idea of trying to save the world, um, even through this immoral, horrible means, uh, you know, a, part of the problem is that the medium of film so I look, the, the, Alan Moore was working with, you know, decades of superhero comics to break down and deconstruct. But really, uh, Zack Snyder makes this movie about superheroes and he has pitched it as this deconstruction or satire of superheroes. But he has made it before we really entered the golden age of superhero filmmaking. Right. So yep. he is like he's deconstructing a thing that hasn't yet been constructed. And because of this, he's just portraying archetypes and because he's just portraying archetypes it works much better as a pure superhero it is the purest superhero movie that has been made i think in a very weird and strange way i like it is it is not a deconstruction it's actually a construction um and uh, yeah that's very like true. i said and like i said he he he, 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 he part of the problem with this is that 
the medium of filmmaking um, makes everyone who would be who is supposed to look ridiculous in this movie actually look more heroic. So like Rorschach is a dirty, disgusting, you know, filthy, smelly person, right? In the in the comics. And you get a sense of that. You 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 can almost see the stink lines coming off him when the cops swarm him in that apartment building. But when you watch the film, you know what you see you see a guy doing extraordinary things in super slow motion, um, in a, in a variety of hero poses, uh uh and it looks awesome. And because it looks awesome, your brain is like, wow, these guys are awesome. These guys, these guys are actually awe inspiring figures. So the, the you know, I, I, again, I, it may just be a problem of transferring the, the, the story from one medium to another, but the way that Zack Snyder tells this story is, is it, it makes it hard for me to think that this is really a satire or deconstruction. It really just feels like a straightforward, um, superhero movie and like i said one of one of the better ones one of the more interesting ones that we've had yeah you're right this came out just a year before the first iron man which really created the language it, of superheroes we have i think it came out the year after so it came out yeah, in 2009 exactly uh, and like and you had uh, the dark knight and iron man both came out in 2008 so it's like it's kind of you know it's it's in a weird place but it's basically right before the MCU kicks off in earnest and, and, you know, well before, you know, Snyder's DC EU, uh, gets going. Um, so it's, it's, it's in an interesting place in the comic book movie timeline. Yeah, that's true. And most of the language of superhero movies relies heavily on visual gags with punchlines and on snappy dialogue and a lot of ridiculous stuff that you can do because it's superheroes, it's comics, and because we have the technology now that it looks plausible. And the superheroes are there to make it survivable. Not so with Watchmen. Here, indeed, everything seems to be played in earnest, straight up. As you said, these people are all inspiring something in movie making lends itself to tragedy and to heroism and to the sense that destiny is enacted on screen it's not just some mistake that somebody slipped up on a banana peel or something to that effect and so it becomes very very easy to attach grand principles to persons watchman has this vast array of characters that could all become the universe of superhero storytelling as you said it's rather than a deconstruction it is the construction it's the source for all of these things that could be done Another very strange thing, there's no attempt to build towards a universe, to put many stories and franchises and businesses and schedules together. It's the opposite. Everything comes in at once. Yeah, it's a standalone. I mean, you don't see a lot of standalone uh, uh, cinematic works anymore. I mean, even um, certainly not in the superhero genre. Everything is connected and everything is, is building to something else. Every movie is an ad for the next movie. Um, yes, exactly. And, it, and and there is something refreshing about Watchmen being its own thing, um, which is again one of the reasons why it was so disappointing that DC decided to uh, like sequelize the comic books and has been. I I don't I don't read superhero comics anymore, but I've been kind of keeping keeping tabs on what they've been doing over there, and it sounds like it's just been a complete disaster. Um, from what I've what I've heard from everyone, uh, so wow. and then and then you have the Damon Lindelof Watchmen HBO series coming up. Who knows what that is going to be like? I'm oh, wow. uh, I'm kind of fascinated. I'm kind of fascinated because I look, it, I I do think I think you could 
at this point in our history, at this point in our cinematic, you know, uh, exploits, there is a way to create a, uh, Watchmen adaptation that actually does serve as a deconstruction. And it is more in line with Alan Moore's, uh, original idea for what, what the series should be. Um, I, but I'm, I'm also not somebody who is particularly interested in the author's own intent. So I, I don't really care if, uh, somebody messes with Alan Moore's work because, you know, it's once you adapt uh, translation and transliteration are two different things. And I, I'm very, I'm very, um, I, I'm I'm happy to see uh, a translation much more than I would be a transliteration. Yeah, Snyder managed to tell that story in a way that hopefully it will last. I think it will, and that's recognizably his. It adds up. He's not putting a veneer on somebody else's work, and that's a rare thing to do—to make it your own and do real storytelling out of it, not to cut corners, not to skip over stuff or to get to the set pieces. Everything is so well put together in there. And, of course, it's a very long movie. Just hard to keep people's attention, actually, over such a long time. But I think superhero movies have trained audiences to sit in the theater for three hours. Yeah. Uh, since The Dark Knight, at least, and then <laughs> up to Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, they've been getting longer and longer. So I guess people would be even more inclined to watch all of Watchmen now than they might have been ten years back. Yeah, there's, I mean, and there's... You know, one of the one of the nice things about home viewing is that you don't you don't have to watch it all in one go, or at the very least, you can you can you know take take a short break to go to the bathroom or whatever. A, in Amazon uh, Prime actually for for a while um, uh, before the end of the year uh, had all three versions of Watchmen available. Um, I actually wrote huh. a, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about this for Decider, uh, but they had the they had the theatrical cut the uh director's cut and the there's like a there's a third even longer cut that works in um uh the comic book the 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 pirate comic book that's like the comic within the comic you know um mm-hmm. it has there's an animated uh, uh uh version of that that's spliced in with the film um and it, it's it's if, if you watch the the version with the animated uh uh film inner inner cut into it uh it it uh you 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 do get a little bit um i think it tips it it tips the film uh more toward being a critique uh of the characters within the film i i like you it 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 becomes a little bit less ambiguous that these are these are supposed to be um considered kind of monstrous actions that are taking place so it's one of the reasons i don't actually particularly like that cut it 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 tips its hand too hard um but uh but it's but it's interesting like how many different versions of this movie that it was considered more or less a disappointment uh, upon release i mean it definitely was not a big money maker um and i think i think some fans of the book were disappointed by the some of the changes and the change to the ending uh but i i i i it, it holds up very well, um, uh, which is surprising for a movie as effects heavy as it is. It is, uh, it is, it is very, um, it, it's dependent on CGI in a way that often ages poorly. But I think this, because the way the CGI is used, especially with Dr. Manhattan, um, it creates kind of an, a, a, an otherworldly effect that it puts it outside of time. Yeah, I think you're right about this. Somehow they hit upon that thing. 
Of course, you're going to find it uncanny when you see the guy. If you get a good cinematic correlative of that, it could last. It's not going to be replaced by superior software. Maybe tastes will change significantly, and in a generation, none of the superhero movies will look plausible, but I don't think so. Zack Snyder has another strange quality. As you said, he really is an artist, an author. You can see him everywhere in his movies. Not that he gets in the way of the storytelling, but just the way he tells the story, it's his way. And it's also uniquely close to computer games that are also getting far more storified and far more sophisticated and invested in this idea of are heroes tragic or mad? And is there a difference? There may be a future in this, and I'm not as curious about seeing a series on Watchmen, but if somebody were to make this into some kind of computer game, that may be interesting. Yeah, that would be kind of amusing. You know, do you imagine if you were uh, Dr. Manhattan? As a as a character, you could just uh, you could end the whole thing in about two minutes. <laughs> yeah, It'd probably be overpowered, but you know. Yeah, that's the very definition. I wonder what you do with that. The story, <laughs> the story has a plot, so you can handle that. I don't know how you would translate that. Again, I mean, there's nothing TV can do for this, but a game would have to find a mechanical version to tell you what does it mean that you really believe in causality to the point that you have no personal freedom of action. Yeah. If you yeah, think I mean, the, this is how things yeah. turn out, why bother? There's, you're right. caught in a chain of consequences that you didn't start and that you cannot end. I'm not sure how you translate that, but it's an interesting thing that games are concerned with. Yeah, yeah, no, it would be it would be hard to do. I mean, you would have to play as, like, I mean, the only character it would make sense to play as is probably Rorschach, since he's the one who is actually, you know, the, the story kind of revolves around him solving the mystery. Uh, and is and at the end he's the only one who was able he, he I, I, I often argue this and people you know think I'm just trolling but Rorschach really is the only moral character in Watchmen he's the only one who looks at what uh, Adrian Veidt has done and finds it correctly to be monstrous um, so you know yeah he's a fanatic of justice that's one thing we really look for in our heroes because we know in reality you're going to have to deal with what happens and live with what you can get and not be fanatic about justice. It's the guy who'd sacrifice for a political cause. I don't mean a political cause in the everyday Twitter sense. I mean really believing that the basis of politics is justice. Right. And I think that's what also makes him quite compelling as a character. Otherwise, investment in morose reactionaries is not grand to judge by our entertainment, but this guy gets it across very well, partly because Jackie Earl Healy pulls a great performance, but partly it's just the character. And I think that's what you get out of earnestness. If you want to compare it with something done badly, that's Black Panther. Black Panther bet on the fact that what American audiences really want is the most simplistic moralistic story ever told, where the hero is morally pure and indestructible at the same time. So there's no price to pay for being moral. Mm. By the uh, way, they're right. I mean, he has no personal flaws of any kind whatsoever. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, this is, but this is, I, I mean, I, I I'll disagree here slightly insofar as I think that Black Panther was interesting because it is the only Marvel movie that had a good villain. Uh, somebody who you could actually uh, who made a case for what he wanted to do and what he wanted to do was something beyond, oh, I want to take over the world or, oh, I want to destroy the planet uh, or, oh, I want to make some money. It was like he had he had an actual ideological grievance uh, that he uh, tried to settle via fisticuffs, yep, um, I which I which is I, which, I think, I, I, you know. 
Black Panther is not my I, Black Panther is not even the best Marvel movie released this year. That was probably Spider Man into the Spider Verse, but like it was, it's a, it is, you know, of the MCU movies, it is, uh, it is, I think one of on the on the upper end of entertaining. Yeah, I I agree about that, and I agree about the villain though, and Michael B. Jordan, who played him, who's been with acting in Ryan Coogler's movies since he was doing indie stuff, is quite a talent. I'm glad to see him do that role. It's uh, is the protagonist that I was uh, training my fire on. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and I think that you know there's there's something to that that even marvel feels they need to go that way you also look at avengers infinity war which should have been called thanos the tragedy yes and which retells that's the setting of the agamemnon tragedy that you have to sacrifice your daughter to achieve the thing that you know has to be done that's exactly what agamemnon does in the greek myth it's uh, and uh, i'm glad to see this done it's by no means a criticism on my part whenever somebody turns a tragedy into a superhero movie he's he's got my money i'm i'm super interested in this and the part that is about thanos is actually strangely persuasive that's... oh the i mean the best part infinity war, I, I well i argued this in my review but i think marvel really copped out by trying to make this an avengers movie Instead of a uh, uh, just a Thanos movie, it should have just been called Thanos. Yep. Um, just like you know, like Thor or Captain America, just like or Iron Man, just Thanos, because everything about him is interesting. All of the emotional beats surrounding him uh, are interesting, and frankly, they're the only real emotional beats in the film, except for Spider-Man thinking Dying. that Tony Stark is his dad. Yep. Um, but like, uh, but like the the. All of the stuff with with Thanos is good. All the stuff with Gamora is great. Um, it's really a much better Guardians of the Galaxy film than an uh, Avengers film. It should have been Guardians of the Galaxy three. I like I, I everything everything about the framing of that movie is wrong in ways that anger me because the rest of the movie is like as a piece of filmmaking, it is a weird summation slash meta movie. It is it is a weird. Uh, attempt to sum up 20 years of filmmaking in one two and a half hour uh movie and because of that it doesn't actually work as a standalone film but it could have very easily you could have very easily made it just it's the thanos movie this is thanos and it would have been so much better but yeah i completely agree there's a i think that to some extent the success of superhero movies should teach people that you can give in to the dark side now and then just make a straight up tragedy or as close to the that thing to a, a noir with superheroes as we can get because everybody can notice immediately that this guy is simply impossible to take your eyes off of and you know that nothing good can come of this but nobody's gonna leave their seat nobody's gonna stop the movie it's just uh, he's amazingly captivating and it turns out that you can turn away from all the yeah. quipping, all the sarcasm, all the this patter that's typical of the MCU, and nobody's gonna complain. Nobody's gonna mind. Everybody will throw every last dollar at you. So I think that a lot of the delusions people have about what Marvel movies really are, or what superhero movies really are, whether they love or hate them, uh, have been disproven to an extent by the the, the grand success in different ways of. Black Panther and uh, this Thanos movie, whether anybody learns anything from this or it was just a flash in the pan, I don't know. It's it's tricky to talk about the business, just like we said about Watchmen, kind of a flop. People lost money on that. Nobody's going to do that again. Great movie, better than all of this other stuff, but 
it should have been a hit as well or else no lessons are going to be learned so to speak nobody's going to try something like this again and yeah. maybe they wanted to hedge their bets on making a movie about this big monster who wants to kill lots of people starting with his daughter that's not going to sell people think or they, they can't get their minds around why it would but obviously audiences loved it <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean look I, uh, far be it from me to criticize uh marvel they seem to know what they're doing um in terms of creating satisfying and financially remunerate remunerative uh features but i i I, can't, I still can't help but feel that there was a slight uh missed opportunity there i don't know yeah i completely agree one hopes that these things can somehow get better but they hedge on these things always in the same direction you don't want to startle your audience you want to make sure that they'll have that good feeling that they'll be amused i think that's probably a wrong idea at least because marvel has done such a good job that everybody knows what their movies are everybody's in love with them it's not just that Zack snyder didn't end up making justice league all the way through but they replaced him with joss whedon mr avengers marvel has won even in dc at some point you just have to take your victory and not obsess over branding anymore i think this was a great opportunity for that it would have been quite a chance to let people see the other stuff it's always been there in Marvel movies. So in America, if you don't go to church, you could watch a Marvel movie instead because at the end, a bunch of heroes will be Jesus for you. They'll sacrifice, they'll die, and then they'll be resurrected for your sins. <laughs> in Guardians of the Galaxy, all the Guardians do it. In the second Guardians movie, they have even more Guardians to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Even Deadpool does it. I, I saw this, I was shocked. At the end of the Deadpool 2 movie, the boy actually looks at Deadpool and says, You sacrificed yourself for me, Deadpool. I thought we were doing a hardcore, filthy, R-rated movie here. Turns yeah. out it's a sentimental tearjerker about Jesus. That's great. I, you know, I guess it's great, but but it's not what people think it is, is what I'm trying to get at. Sure. There's sure. far more pathos in these things than people are willing to admit. Maybe, now that Marvel simply owns the American imagination about heroes, they'll do more daring things. 2017 and 2018 have been better signs in that direction. I have no idea what's coming next, but I think it's an improvement. Yeah, maybe. I don't, we'll see. I don't want to predict the future. <laughs> <laughs> That's safe. So, one reason I wanted to do this is because it was the 10th anniversary of Watchmen this year. Another is because I have no idea either about the future of Zack Snyder, but I do think he's a great artist and he's shown what you could do if you have a vision and technical control of it in a new genre. And he's an amazing guy. So thanks a lot for joining me. It was a pleasure talking to you. And let's everybody watch Watchmen all over again. Thanks for having me on. All the best. Yeah.